Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Blog Talk Radio. This is Pat Salber with the Dr. Way Hin on radio, and we have such a fascinating uh, guest and a fascinating topic today. Um, we have joining us Swati Kiran, who is a PhD and a professor in the Department of Speech, Language, and Hearing Sciences at Boston University, and she is an expert in aphasia rehabilitation, and she's going to be telling us exactly what that is during our conversation, and also an expert in brain plasticity. She's the co-founder and the scientific advisor to a really, really interesting uh, company called Constant Therapy. So welcome, Swati. Thank you. Glad to be here. Well, we're glad you could join us. I know it's a little bit late back in uh, Boston. We're here on the West Coast where the sun is still shining. Um, mm-hmm. I thought we'd start out by having you tell us, so what is constant therapy, what are you doing, and if you could weave in, because you're talking about changing the brain, a little bit about how it's different from, you know, all those companies that are out there that are claiming they're going to be able to keep you from develop, developing dementia if you just play their brain games. Uh, yeah, so um, tell us about it. Sure. Sounds good. Um, Constant Therapy is a software platform that we've developed that can be run on an iPad or an Android device. So it's something that you download onto your tablet and you can work on it remotely. Um, And this platform has two sort of dashboards to it. There's a clinician dashboard that speech-language pathologists and occupational therapists can use, and they can assign, they can assess their patients using this platform, they can assign treatment using this platform, and they can monitor their patients' progress um, remotely um, using this platform. There's also a patient dashboard to this, and um, the patient can log into their account and see exactly how much therapy they've done over the last day, month, year. Um, they can continue to work on therapy exercises that have been assigned by their clinician, um, and they can do all, all this at the comfort of their home, and the data gets um, in terms of uh, how much progress they're making. And this program really came about because, as you mentioned, um, you know, one of my areas of expertise is to develop rehabilitation approaches for patients with with, uh, stroke and who have difficulty communicating. And we've shown over several years that even chronic patients, even patients who've had a stroke and live with with, uh, uh, aphasia for two, three, four years can improve their language and communication skills as long as they get therapy, as long as they work on their language skills. And we've been showing that the brain's plastic and you need to really be systematic and, and, um, and structured about the way you try to reprogram your brain 
after a neurological disorder like stroke. Um, what was frustrating was that, that you know, we were only able to show these in the clinical studies we were doing, and it wasn't really reaching the patients who needed it the most. And we were able to uh, start constant therapy um, as a platform to then um, deliver this to, you know, patients across the country and, um, and even beyond that. Now, the thing about... Um, what is uh, important about the way constant therapy works is that there's an, a number of language and cognitive exercises that um, and the language and you just cut out for a moment if you could repeat that oh oh so the the really important thing about constant therapy is that it um, really depends on um, it, it tries to focus on speech language and cognitive exercises so we're built in a huge array of um, therapy tasks, and these are therapy tasks that we know to be effective in re in rehabilitation. So we've picked studies, we've give, picked therapy tasks. Can you give us an example of a therapy task? What 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 exactly is the patient doing on their end when they're sitting there with your platform on their laptop? Yeah, fantastic question. So let's assume that somebody has had a stroke in their left hemisphere and they have um, something called aphasia, and what they struggle with is coming up with the names of words. Um, sometimes they can tell you that they can think of what it is, but they can't say it. And sometimes um, they have trouble reading words and they have trouble spelling words, so they have trouble communicating at the wor just single words. And what we've done here is we've developed uh, a picture naming task that helps them practice naming of pictures. We've, helped, we've developed a written spelling task where they look at pictures of uh, items and they have to spell the word. So let's just take the word tiger. Um, the, the program teaches them how to spell the word tiger while uh, looking at a picture and it has the letters T-I-G-E-R and a bunch of other letters. And these individuals have trouble identifying the letters T and I and G from the array of letters. And sometimes they don't know that a picture of tiger is a tiger. That's what brain damage does to their brain. And what we've done here is, um, is allowed the patients to practice, to, to retrieve the letters, to get the words from the letters from the brain with repeated practice while giving them help as they're doing that. So if they press the letter L instead of T, it says, whoop, that's wrong. You need to pick T. And if they pick the letter um, E instead of I, it says, oh, that's a different vowel. So it gives them feedback along the way in terms of what they're getting right or wrong, and, and, and repeated practice of these you know, type of um, exercises gives them, um, it sort of improves their ability to retrieve the words, spell the words, and um, over time improve their, that particular skill. Now what we've done here is we've done this across language domains as well as cognitive domains such as uh, math and uh, executive function and so forth. Did that answer your question? Yeah, uh, absolutely. So it sounds like, um, since I'm a person who learned Spanish as an adult, it sounds like kind of the same process that we use to acquire a foreign language. Um, is, that, is that a fair comparison? Um, yes, I think that is probably a fair comparison. Um, um, although I think that um, at least part of, um, yes, I think the, the underlying mechanism is the same, is that you really need to break language down or cognitive processing down into its fundamental units, and in this case it's down to word meaning and it's down to grammar and it's down to the phonology or the sounds of the words or the working memory. And that it, therein lies what is really um, important about constant therapy is that we've broken all the therapy exercises down into these, these fundamental units of language and cognitive processing. So it is true that it's like 
um, it provides as much help and assistance as for someone who's learning a new language. Um, but it, it proceeds at a pace that's much, much slower because we understand that um, people who have had neurological disorders don't learn that as quickly as normal people because they're fundamentally wrong with the way the brain's processing information. And we've tried to build that factor into the software as well. And do you have, I know you probably can't answer this question definitively, but do you have any thoughts about what's actually happening, happening at the anatomic level as a stroke patient starts to reacquire their language? Are they growing new axons? Are they getting new neurons? What, what do you think is going on? Yeah, so it's funny that you asked me that because my other area of research um, uh, is is really looking at brain plasticity um, in people who receive this neurorehabilitation. Neuro and, of course, we don't have data of patients using constant therapy, and, and we don't have brain images of them yet, um, and that's future work that we're hoping to do. But in other work where we teach people how to read words or name pictures, we have looked at their brains before and after intervention. And um, it's not quite clear whether the brain grows new, new, new connections, but it's certainly um, there's fairly strong evidence that suggests that the brain repurposes specific parts of the other parts of the brain to take over function. And the more you receive recovery, the more efficient that repurposing of, of function is. So sometimes language moves to the right hemisphere, sometimes undamaged parts of the brain take over function. And really what's underlying all this is increased connectivity in the brain. And that's something that we're studying very extensively right now. Well, that's fascinating. As it, it gets repurposed, we use other areas of the brain to take over these functions for areas that are damaged. Does it, does it push out other functions or is is some of that tissue just redundant and, and so it doesn't hurt anything to repurpose it? Or do yeah, that's know? an excellent yeah, that's an excellent question. Um I, I think people have people don't know the definitive answer yet, but there are several theories. Um one prevailing theory that we are starting to look at is is are there parts of the brain, uh, more frontal regions, cortices in your brain that are sort of domain general that are not so much redundant, but they're just really efficient at doing many different things. If you're a chess player, you're really good at doing playing chess, and, and this region sort of monitors that. But if I'm a violinist, this region monitors my my ability to be an expert violinist as well. So it's more of a, the prefrontal cortex, and um, and maybe it's just doing different things um, efficiently. And when you have a stroke, it sort of kicks in gear because now you really need um, to have something, some region take over this lost function, and um, it's not what this region typically does, but it's pretty good at doing it. Um, and this is one theory. People have other theories as well. So what, besides stroke, um, and that certainly is an important um, condition to, to be applying this uh, program to, but what other kinds of um, brain problems uh, have you found this program particularly useful for? Sure. Um, so in our um, preliminary study that we did to examine the, the feasibility and efficacy of this uh, program, we looked at people who had had a stroke and a TBI. Um, we, Can you tell us um, what a TBI is? Sure. It's a traumatic brain injury um, that people have had. And again, we're looking at chronic individuals. They've had it for a while. Um, and um, they also have language and, and cognitive deficits, and that's uh, how we included them in this uh, in, our, in our preliminary study. Um, there, there is an ongoing um, clinical study with uh, individuals with uh, mild cognitive impairment, 
um, an early onset dementia that's uh, going on at the Boston VA right now. Um, but in general, I think that um, because we are trying to really focus on what's broken, which is language and cognitive processing, um, and the brain is one organ, and it you know it works the same way whether you're an adult or a child, and it tries to process information the same way. Um, we think that you know in, in, as long as we can prove this in clinical trials. Um, these therapy studies, uh, these therapy tasks, sorry, will be applicable to other neurological disorders and as well. So let me give you an example of what I mean by that. So one of the uh, big problems that people with aphasia have is accessing the sounds of the words. So, you know, you look at a picture of a banana, you know what it what it is, but people with aphasia will look at it, they know it's yellow, um, it's something you eat, but they just get the sounds wrong. They say nabana or you know, nabana. Um, and that's the fundamental problem with the brain trying to retrieve the sounds of the words in a sequence. And what we're doing in constant therapy is helping them sort of program and practice how to say or, or think about these words. It turns out that that fundamental problem in, in sequencing and processing words is also something that kids with learning disability have, and that spills over to their inability to read words as well. And so the, the, the hypothesis, or at least the thought, is that you know, if you're really fixing these underlying language and cognitive skills, um, it should apply to fixing neurological disorders um, or you know, these sort of information processing um, deficits that we see across the board. Having said that, you know, we, we're still waiting to, to do all the clinical studies to show that that actually works. Well, before we get into the clinical studies, which of course I, I do want to talk about, uh, I want to uh, dive into dementia a little bit because, of course, as people get older, I'd say the number one fear that people have, it used to be heart attacks, but now it's, oh, no, I forgot that word. Am I getting Alzheimer's disease? Um, and I think that's why some of these brain game programs like Luminosity have um, been so popular and, and, you know, made that company so much money because people think that they'll be able to prevent the onset of Alzheimer's. Um, so without asking you to comment on their business model, my question to you is, is there anything about constant therapy that would make us think it would have um, any preventive benefits for people, uh, you know, either along the path of dementia or perhaps even earlier on somebody who's got, you know, mother and father, grandparents, everybody with dementia? Is there, it, it, would it be useful for them to start um, practicing with, with constant therapy before they ended up with any symptoms? Um, so I will reserve a final response to that based on what science tells us. Um, I think um, I think what's happening right now, um, at least let me sort of start this way. So over the last five or, you know, last 10 years, um, there's been fairly consistent evidence um, that's emerging, first initially with small studies and now with larger studies that, you know, when people are initially diagnosed with dementia, there is a way to treat them um, um, and there is a way to sort of reverse um, or stall the course of the decline. And so it's not that all is lost when you're diagnosed with dementia. There is a way to maintain those functions. And um, and the clinical study I was... Uh, and with behavioral therapy, with, with, with cognitive and language intervention as well. The kinds of intervention have varied. Um, some of them are, you know, a very uh, systematic rehabilitation pro platforms, just like... Um, what you would do with stroke individuals. Some of them are like more memory types of um, reminiscence kinds of um, interventions where they have them remember social um, events. 
Um, there, so there's data showing that you you know you can actually um, turn back the clock a little bit, or at least stall the the language and cognitive decline with with appropriate therapy, um, and that's really the the basis for what is the ongoing trial at the VA, and that's what they're trying to study. I um, I'm a little hesitant to say that 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 um, that constant therapy should be used to um, prevent the disease until we have data that shows that it actually works um, with the population. Um, although, you know, if everything that I've been saying is is true and valid, which is, you know, we are working on these underlying cognitive and language processing mechanisms, and the more you practice, the more um, your brain tends to um, you know, to 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 maintain and, and improve function. Um, presumably, that should you know this should hold that as you know as soon as you feel that there's some cognitive and language changes and you start um, working on it systematically, there is a way to maintain it. I mean, I will say that two of the most important principles of neuroplasticity are use it and lose or, or lose it, and and use it and improve it. So we are thinking that um, no matter what you know, what the population is, including people who have uh, mild cognitive impairment, um, should sh- to, should show some benefit from doing systematic um, language and cognitive training. But we don't have the data yet um, there. So it's, you know, it's a little far out. Okay. Well, good segue into um, what kind of studies besides the VA study that you're participating in, what kind of studies have you done? And do you have um, any of any of those studies published in peer-reviewed literature? How do how do we know constant therapy works? Sure. So what I what I'll do actually is talk about a case study that was published um, in a in a journal, the International Journal of uh, Physical and Medical Rehabilitation, that actually you know draws from what I just said before, where uh, we had somebody who had a, had a stroke, um, not a, not dementia, but had a stroke. Um, was in our study for uh, for about 12 weeks, which I'll talk about in a second. But then he, once he was discharged um, and he was done with our study, he went back to his home uh, in New England and continued to use the program. And what we were able to do, because we could monitor his performance remotely, was detect changes in his accuracy and latency on specific language and cognitive tasks um, uh, that were just sort of dropping down dramatically um, and the family was noticing that they were on, he was unable to do the therapy tasks, even though he could do it a week before and a month before. Um, and that led to a series of events where they went to the doctor, um, the, ER, the doctor's office, and, and he was subsequently diagnosed with a second stroke. So um, that was a really great example of how, you know, continuously monitoring um, someone's ability to be doing language and cognitive uh, exercises and therapy tasks um, can be a good indicator of when something is wrong um, because there, you know, there are alerts in the system that says, oh, these, this performance is dropping dramatically. And what was really important in that particular study was that, in that case report, was that um, these changes in his ability to do the tasks preceded the actual stroke itself. Um, so we think that that's, you know, that's really important. Um, but, but the other study, that the main study that we've done um, as we were developing constant therapy was an open uh, trial clinical feasibility study where we had 51 patients um, who had had a stroke or a TBI. And what we did in this case was we were really trying to see if we could scale a software platform where everybody in the study got the therapy that they needed. So some people needed more language therapy, some people needed more cognitive therapy, and we were trying to see if we could assign, we could give the kind of therapy they needed while still showing that practicing on this platform improved their function. So the experimental patients 
um, came into the clinic and saw us once a week and then took the iPad home and practiced as much um, as they wanted to and we measured compliance. The control patients only came into the clinic and practiced with us uh, once a week, which is a traditional standard of care, uh, and did not take anything home. And what we found was that um, they everybody improved because we were using this novel platform, and that's why we had everybody use the iPad. However, the experimental patients who got a lot more practice improved significantly on all the standardized tests that we had administered. Uh, and more importantly, it turned out that the more severe patients who got all this extra practice at home improved much more than the less severe patients. So this is very, very important because most of the times the severe patients are told to go home and there's nothing to help them. Um, and this, to this particular finding told us that, you know, no, these more severe patients um, have a lot more to go uh, and have a long way to go, but with adequate practice and, and, and the ability to do therapy at home, they can actually show the same kinds of improvements as the less, um, less impaired patients. So there were several things that came out of the study, but I, I think from, from a perspective of what is, you know, you know, what's the really important finding here is that you can tailor therapy to, for individual people, Patients can practice at home. They don't have to come to the clinic, and, and, and uh, more practice is good for you, as I've said before. And um, everybody has a shot at improving, and especially the more severe patients. Um, so that's so those all are the two right. big – Yeah, that's really good news. I, I have one last question before I move on to the money side of things, and that is uh, we know that there's um, – a great fall off in the use of uh, medical applications over time. Uh, have you have you had this out there long enough to know people come in, they're really excited, spend a lot of time in the beginning, but three months later they're not using it at all. Do, do you know anything about how how motivated sure. people are to continue using it? Yeah. So so I'll um, I'll say a little bit about that. Um, that you know most of these people who um, you know. Who are living with these sort of neurological disorders are living with a chronic disability, and there's really nothing else out there for them um, by way of uh, improving their ability. Right? They're not taking drugs and pills every day. They're really trying to live with this, uh, whether you're a dyslexic or a stroke patient or so forth. Um, and what this allows them to do, having an iPad at home when they can log in and do whatever they, whenever they want the therapy that they want to do, gives them a sense of empowerment. Um, that they're managing their own care, which I think is extremely important in the current environment. So what, what has been really interesting is that, um, you know, two years ago we did the, our clinical study. We published it last year, and there are patients from that clinical trial who were initially put on the software to, in 2012 um, who are still using it. So it, it gives a certain level of empowerment to these individuals. But also these patients are really, really motivated to improve their function. So, um I mean, I can't tell you specific numbers of how many people drop off in the first month versus three months, but it's much, much, it's much longer than people who are playing games because here they're really motivated to do, do this because they're trying to improve something that they're struggling with. Right. Yeah, that's, very, that's a very good point. Did you have to get FDA approval for this? No, so so we no we haven't, um, and I'll tell you how uh, I think that's sort of uh, your question about you know how how did you initially get funding? Um, so as a professor uh, at BU, I was fortunate enough to receive a foundation grant that um, essentially was uh, um, you know is focused on translating bench side work 
um, to the clinic and, you know, have more sort of real-life uh, applications. And that initial funding allowed us to get kick off the clinical study and really, you know, develop and, and digitize all the therapy tasks we knew that, um, that have been um, efficient in, you know, the traditional clinical environment. Um, since then, we've gone on to getting other types of funding. So um, right now, the, the program is usually um, offered by a clinician. The clinician tries to um, either assess the patient in the clinic or, or deliver the or assign homework to the patient. Um, but it's usually only it's usually after a person's been diagnosed with the stroke. This is sort of what the therapy is. It's no different from what the clinician would do otherwise. But now she can really monitor the patient's. Um, uh, you know, in real time, is whether they're actually doing the homework or not. Um, in the in the future, I'm not sure. I, I think our plan is to really evaluate whether um, you know how this fits in with the FDA regulations and what we would need to do um, to be ready for that. But so far, we've really relied on um, on clinicians to help us um, administer and and sort of you know be our advocates. So I, uh, as an individual, I couldn't go and buy this for my uncle, I would have to find a doctor who'd be willing to prescribe it? No, you couldn't. You wouldn't. You couldn't tell your uncle to download the application and they could um, uh, sign up for an account, but they would have to tell us, they would have to tell the program when they were diagnosed with the, the neurological disorder and some information about that. This is not, the program does not make a diagnosis. Oh, oh, okay. But but in, but anybody can access it at this point. And um, yeah. so you said you have other funding. You know, it's interesting. You started with a grant. So my question is, did I mean, are you a for-profit company, and did they have any problems with giving you a grant? And now you're going to go out and become, you know, billionaires? Uh, uh, no. So <laughs> interesting. One of their missions is to help commercialize uh, ideas that are essentially so this is the Wallace Coulter Foundation uh, and they have uh, they have several such entities across the country and their goal the Coulter Foundation's goal is to really make a lot of these medical um, you know, you know, lab technologies much more accessible to people. Um, so they've been supportive of us getting funding. Um, uh, they, you know, they give the initial seed foundation funding, but really they've been very supportive of us going out and getting external funding. And we've had angel investment um, in the past and looking to get um, VC funding in the future. So it's 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 a for for profit company, but it's um, it's it's birth is from this idea that you know. Ideas that are born in the lab laboratory need to see the light of day. Otherwise, what are we trying to do in terms of you know helping the world? Yeah, ab- absolutely. I'm I'm 100% on board with that. So uh, let's close with um, having you tell us a little bit about uh, you know in order to be a sustainable for-profit company, uh, you're going to have to make money. Uh, are you making money? How are you making money? What's your business model? Um, sure. So right now, the the short term goal is to really be the standard of care, so that clinicians and occupational therapists and and neurologists and physicians um, say, "Oh, you're going home, or you're going to come back and see me in a few weeks. I need you to be working on something at home, and that's going to be constant therapy." Um, that is really what um, is being focused as the the business model right now is to really try to get um, all clinicians of all sorts on board with this being the standard of care. Um, the very, very long-term goal is to to really use the data that we're collecting um, along the way because clinicians are telling their patients to use the software um, and patients are using the software on a daily basis. And we think that we're collecting data about what therapies work 
um, and what don't work. And so it's almost like a big, giant, uh, you know, clinical trial that's going on that tells us to, that gives us enough data to sift through um, things that work and things that don't work and what works for what kinds of people. And, and really, most importantly, can you predict people's outcomes before they actually do the therapy? So the kinds of things where going to be trying to do very soon is based on the data we've collected. Um, if somebody says, I've, you know, I'm 25 years old, I've had a stroke for three years, or I've had a brain injury for two years, um, and I'm, I'm having trouble with these kinds of things, do we have enough data here to say, well, you know, John, you need to work um, 60 days at this level to work on this specific thing, and you can expect to improve X percent. That's really the kind of data we've been collecting, and that's the way we want to use that, that data. The other thing um, that, I, that I think is sort of related to that is um, that with such kind of data um, and the recognition that, you know, brain uh, functioning is not a unidimensional, um, uh, you know, aspect. It's we're all multidimensional. We have different strengths and weaknesses in attention and memory and executive functioning and reading and so forth. What we're really trying to do here is get that unique multidimensional profile of each individual because that's how when they do the therapy tasks, we're able to understand what their strengths and weaknesses are. And that unique profile where your profile is going to look very different from my profile is going to tell us a lot about um, you know what's normal, what's 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 not unchanging, and what actually is, um, you know, like what's likely to change as a function of dementia or you know learning disability, disability or something. And I go back to that that paper I was telling you about, where you know we can actually track people's ability to retrieve words and and read things and um, monitor them over time. And so this unique profile will give us really important information on when things are right and when things are wrong. Well, I, you know, listen, I want to congratulate you on not just having created this marvelous platform, but also the fact that you're collecting all this data, because that's really going to be a, a game changer, I think, you know, when big, yeah. big data hits rehab, and we can start uh, not just having improved therapy, but also, you know, this predictive ability that you talked about, and maybe eventually yeah. even some uh, information that will help us with prevention. So, Swathi, I really yeah. want to thank you very much for joining us. Uh, thank you for the work you do. Thank your co-founders. And I hope you'll come back and uh, give us an update uh, sometime in the future. Thank you very much. Sounds great. Thank you very much. All right. Bye-bye. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere 
and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.